Bones and Bobbins podcast is now on Patreon. Yay! Would you like access to bonus episodes, which are super awesome, digital extras, exclusive merch, and more? Join us in the Curiosity Shop at patreon.com backslash Bones and Bobbins. Your generous support helps make the show happen and will also earn you our very eternal gratitude (laughs) and entry into our private Patreon-only Facebook group, which is delightful. So delightful. Yes, there were a lot of haunted lawn ornaments hanging out there this week. (laughs) There are. There are, and I love it. I I, I did not see that one coming. No, no. Like, flamingos of many varieties definitely haunted. Yes. Incredible. Anyway. In a dusty old shop on a forgotten old street, you'll find two witches with books three boxes deep. Next to rusty old needles and faded red thread, you'll come in for yarn, but leave with pigments instead. Whether poisons or patterns, we're always discreet. Where creepy and crafty and morbidity meet. Welcome to the Bones and Bobbins podcast. Hello, morbid makers. We are your slightly creepy, mildly disconcerting, somewhat sinister, delightfully discomposed, opaquely odd, merrily morbid, marvelously misanthropic hosts. And this is Bones and Bobbins, Season 2, Episode 11, Not So Mellow Yellow. I'm Haley from Red Handled Scissors and the Very Serious Crafts Podcast. And I'm Natalie from Uber Dork Designs, an official true crime creative. Fancy. (laughs) Fun. And we just hit our one year anniversary. Holy shit. Right? I mean... Yeah, I, I remember us being like, well, it's lockdown, so I guess we better finally start that podcast we were going to start. <laughs> right? <sighs> yep. yep, better not wait until this is over. So It is my favorite thing to come out of the pandemic. Yes, my mine far. too. Because it's fun and... I get to see people, but I don't have to leave my chair. Yes, yes. And I don't like to leave my chair. Understandable, understandable. Yeah. So, oh, that is, that's exciting. And I didn't even realize it until you told me. And I completely I, for, I completely forgot into, like, Facebook memory. <laughs> so I was like, oh, hey, look at that. That's funny. I so infrequently look at my memories, but every once in a while, it'll do the auto-serve when I open Facebook that's on my happened. phone, yep. and that's when I see them, and so I must not have done it that day. But I am very excited for us. I am too. And thank you, listeners, for yes. listening to us talk about creepy shit for a year seriously like and y'all are the best you're all 
super amazing and we appreciate all of the support yes we really do so you know what i'm doing right now what you doing i'm wearing absurdly tiny shorts (laughs) tiny tiny shorts they're so tiny i do not understand why are shorts this tiny why would you make shorts this short why is this the only length of short that seems to exist that's a good question because patriarchy i'm blaming everything on the patriarchy okay i (laughs) i feel comfortable with that (laughs) i don't know if i i feel like since i don't go outside that the patriarchy isn't terribly involved in my shorts true but it would be immediately upon stepping outside my door makes sense do they have pockets though hell yes they have pockets (laughs) okay they have four functioning pockets all right they aren't as deep as pockets should be but they are they are made well cut off jean shorts because heaven forbid I just cut off jean shorts. Um, No, no, I had to buy those. (laughs) Oh, God. Yes, you do. Well, yay for tiny shorts. Tiny shorts. So what else is going on? Something terrible happened this week. Oh, no. I was in the shower, and I happened to glance down, and you know how when something is slightly out of place and it just catches your eye? Mm Mm-hmm. So I have, like, a bath mat, like one of those non-slip ones that you stick on the floor in the shower so you don't fall on your ass and break your hip. Oh, yes. I have those as well. Yes. Well, mine wasn't being used at the time for reasons. I, I don't know, because I'm dumb. And I looked up and I saw this like large brown thing on it and at first like i have very dark hair mm-hmm. i thought it was just like hair that had for reasons unclear collected on this bath mat hanging on the wall of my shower mm-hmm. and i looked again and it was a gigantic fucking spider oh no Mm-mm. like huge like visible segmentation of thorax and uh, it was massive it was also a daddy long legs so (gasps) it wasn't like those are my favorite though (laughs) yeah i i the thing about those is they're sinister motherfuckers (laughs) because they're they are poisonous are they yeah, they are, but they're, uh, what is it, mandible? Is that what we call them on spiders? I don't know. They aren't, the mouth parts that they would use to bite mm-hmm. aren't long enough to pierce the skin. Oh. And so they can try all they want, <laughs> and it doesn't matter because um, they're, that part of their body simply is not equipped to bite people. So that's why they're harmless. 
But this thing was huge. Oh, like, wow. multiple inches, and by multiple, I mean, like, two uh, <laughs> in diameter. Oof. Yeah. So, and you, so you burnt down your bathroom. <laughs> so I finished my shower with my eyes wide open, despite all oh, no. of the soap and whatever running into my face just to make sure that fucking spider didn't move because (laughs) I have a tub shroom and if that spider came down it was gonna just hang out by my feet because it couldn't go down the drain because I have a thing that keeps the drain from clogging and so I'm keeping an eye on this damn spider and it, it stays put I angled the shower head away from it so it wasn't getting splashed and I was like all right buddy you stay put and I will get a container and transport you outside I just need you to stay put and (laughs) so oh but it did not stay put so I exited the bathroom for like a moment I don't even remember what it was for it was I think maybe a delivery came or something but like I still had a towel on my head and stuff mm-hmm. and so when I came back in the bathroom that motherfucker was gone no and I was like oh no <laughs> it's the worst because then you're like where is it now and so I'm looking around do you know where it was oh where it was making a web across the like little alcove where the toilet is so like back and forth directly above the toilet cheeky little fucker i know (laughs) and i was like listen and now it was you know dry so it was all spread out so it was as big as it could be and i was just like we had a deal (laughs) we had a deal and you had to decide to go and make that web in 33 seconds. I don't even understand how that happened that fast. Which makes me think that that web already existed, and I don't <laughs> want to think about that. Nope. 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 <laughs> nope. So, luckily, I happen to own multiple Dysons. <laughs> and I, I just keep touching my face because <sighs> I keep feeling things and I'm talking about spiders oh god anyway so I was trying to decide which one was going to handle this and went with the handheld with an extension that had a turbo boost yep even though my hand was going to have to be there and I was going to have to be vaguely below it that still seems like the right choice yeah it worked it was fine (laughs) And then I made Jeremy empty the vacuum when he got home. <sighs> yeah. Anyway, if that fucking spider had just stuck to the plan, it would have been outside. Yeah. Living its best spider life. But no, it had to make a web over my toilet. It chose poorly. It chose death. I'm yeah. sorry. Except- I'm not sorry. I had my own encounter with giant live creatures. Uh Uh-oh. We were driving home, and we now live 
pretty much butt up against 8,600 acres of wildlife reserve. Mm-hmm. Which is amazing. It is amazing, and I love it. Uh, so we're driving, and, you know, the road's like 55 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And I look, and I'm like, I see something in the road, and I'm like, ugh. Roadkill. <laughs> it's not uncommon. Uh, there's a lot of roadkill, but it's usually, you know, your standard uh, possum, raccoon, deer kind of thing. My and dad I- has a song he sings every time. <laughs> oh, no. We would come across roadkill when I was growing up, also in the Midwest. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I'm not sure where it came from. I don't know if he made it up or if it came from an old TV show, uh-huh. but it's all I can think of. <laughs> so I'm like, I drive past it and I'm like, the fuck? I was like, was, was that a turtle? <laughs> and they were like, I don't know. And I was like. I think there's a freaking turtle. It happens. <laughs> Mind you, we have a turtle. We have mm-hmm. a turtle named Archie. Uh, but he's little. This dude, not so small. <laughs> so I turn around and I was like, there's no way this turtle's getting across the street. It's 55 miles an hour. Not that there's a lot of traffic, but there's traffic. But turtles aren't known for their speed. Right. So I flip around. <laughs> and uh i pull up and sure as shit it is a giant like almost the size of like a trash can cover holy shit it is a giant friggin' turtle and we're like huh and we were not about to let this turtle not not get to safety so it was barely well, in the road. No, but only certain kinds of turtles get that size. <laughs> right. So we're sitting there and uh, I'm like, okay, he, he just got on the road. So let's get him off the, off back where he started from and, right. you know, Because you don't want to move turtles too far away from where they start because then they will never find home again. Right. And they will try to find home for the rest of their lives and die. Right. So yeah. I'm like, all if right. If you don't know that and you have kids who want to pick up a turtle, you should keep that in mind if you're not going to make it a pet. Exactly. So I'm like, all right. And before we get out and really realize the true <laughs> spance of this thing, uh, I'm like, well, just pick it up from behind and run it back to the, you know, just make sure yeah. the head's away from you. You're right. Which, if it was... I'm picturing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles at this moment, <laughs> like using a trash can lid as a shield. Right, but you know, I'm sure that like happened. Not like we're rolling around with a trash can lid in our car. <laughs> so we're like, okay, <laughs> this is not that. None of us are brave enough to try to pick this thing up because we're not even sure we could just carry it, just one of us, because it's that damn big. Uh, so we're digging <laughs> through our trunk and we're like, oh, so like the youngest has like this. It was a, like a poster mailer, so like a cardboard yeah, yeah, yeah. tube. And she's like, I'm just going to kind of wave it at it and see if I can, you know, get it to turn <laughs> around and move. So she goes walking up to him and she goes, boop, boop, and it snaps. Shwam! <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my God. The Good head on you it. didn't try to pick that up. And that'll yeah. take your finger. So we're like, that's not going to, that's not going to work. 
Uh, I mean, I guess if it snaps onto it, you could just, like, fishing rod it over. (laughs) Right. We found out later on when Eldis went to school the next day from her peers that apparently that's how you get them is you... You stick a, a, but we didn't yeah. have like a small tree trunk. I mean, that's, you're going to need a substantial stick to drag it. But you wait, you poke it, and then they grab onto the stick and you drag them. Oh, no, I know. But um, this thing is not, yeah. I'm like, you don't understand the size of this thing. I mean, we're not talking about like some little dinner plate sized turtle or some tiny little. No, this thing was huge. So then we're like, okay, so I started Googling. It's and like, I tried... is this a tortoise? Right, right, right. Seriously. Someone found a tortoise, by the way. In my neighborhood in Brooklyn, wandering down a street last week. <laughs> that kind of tracks. Uh, they found its person. Oh. Um, it had a funny name, too, and now I can't remember what it is. Yeah. But anyway, carry on. <laughs> so we, so, and I tried calling the reserve because the, we were close, it was close to where the actual reserve's, like, center was. Uh, oh, where you, maybe it escaped. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, so I was like, you know, maybe somebody there will know how to deal with this. And of course it was after hours. So they didn't answer. Right. Uh, so then we're like, okay. So I start Googling and they're like, put down like a towel and have them climb on the towel. And then you drag mm-hmm. it. And I was like, okay, well, we've got like a box. We've got an empty box. So we flatten out the box and we threw it down on the ground and we're trying. And meanwhile, we're like ushering traffic around. And just like, hi, we're normal uh, Well, people at least just... there were enough of you. Right. Like you could in fact um like there were enough of you to be visible right and there was enough time and it was to signal yeah and it was light out so uh which was another yeah, that's, fun factor that's uh, good because that would have not been a good deal so we <laughs> this this Just turtle picturing your faces this right this turtle <laughs> was the very embodiment of i think the fuck not like it was not gonna find out (laughs) pretty much it was like no i'm not nope nope i'm gonna do whatever so i'm like all right let's just kind of like hang out here so because it started walking then we're like okay so it starts inching towards the other lane inching towards the other lane it's and then it stops a bit and then it's inching so we're we're hi biggie just trying to (laughs) just trying to usher it Mm-hmm. So it gets to the other side and we're like, all right, cool. I'm going to, let's get in the car. We'll whip around. We'll block the traffic from the other side now until it gets on the grass. So we jump in the car. We're getting ready to flip it around and a pickup truck comes flying. And I'm waving out of the car. And I'm like, turtle, turtle. And we're like, oh my God. The girls were like, cover your eyes. And we're like, no. And somehow this pickup truck missed the turtle. Oh my gosh. But for a moment, we were like, oh, my God. And so we finally, we finally just, and it, so we stayed there. We finally got the thing across, like, to where it clearly was trying to go. Um, but I swear to God, if I see that turtle ever again, try to cross its happy ass back the other way, I'm going to be prepared. That's all I'm saying. But <laughs> so that was my large animal encounter of the week. I had a pet snapping turtle when I was five. Aww. Uh, we lived in a house where the backyard was a river. Okay. Um, which is really super safe for your five-year-old. <laughs> um, <laughs> but whatever. I knew that you didn't get into there. And there was even a path down, like, on tree roots that stuck out so you could fish 
Nice. Just, you know. Oh, yeah. In people case here. You, yeah. We'll just park on the side of the road and just uh, just start fishing. We live, I love the name of our river because I think it's so much fun, but we live by the Kickapoo. <laughs> well. <laughs> so, yeah. People just That's brand, fun. you'll see like abandoned cars on the side of the road and the true crime, the true crime slash murderinos and all of us are like, that's suspicious. Um, but yeah. it's really just people that Mine just, was the Kalamazoo River. Jibber, <laughs> nice. Also suspicious. So, yeah. So, yeah. it's, uh, yeah, good times with yeah. the large creatures this week. And we my, my snapping turtle was a baby. Yeah. My mom almost hit it with a lawnmower. Oh, no. And saw it and was like, nope, and threw it in my kiddie pool. Okay. Because my kiddie pool was right there. Or maybe she threw it in my sandbox. I had, like, both of them right next mm-hmm. to each other. And I, of course, appeared and was like, ooh, turtle. Mine And that, yep, and that turtle lived in i think i turned the kiddie pool into a habitat and it lived in that thing until it was i don't know like the size of my head Mm -hmm. and then one day it crawled out and went on about its business presumably to the river and i was just like okay bye turtle but it snapped at everyone Never once snapped at me. I could hold that thing, Aww. and it was just like, I'm a turtle. And my mom or my stepdad would come near it, and it would be like, nope. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, I guess we should probably talk about things that are not animals, since we do not have an animal-related podcast. That's true. That's true. Today on Animal yeah. Corner. <laughs> what we should I'm... actually do, you know what we could do? We could take a little break. We okay. can thank all of our fantastic Curiosity Shop members over on Patreon. Yes, because they are amazing. So amazing. Uh-huh. And if you want to join us there, this part of the... Yes, definitely. This part of the podcast is where we would totally give you a pretty normal and not at all creepy welcome. Like, yes. shout out so everyone knows how amazing you are. We wouldn't give you a snapping turtle. No snapping turtles. Um, and uh, no giant spiders unless you really like them. Maybe. I mean, some people do. They do. I had a friend with a pet spider named Movedra. <gasps> oh, that's a good name. She was interesting. There you go. But yeah, anyway. join us. It's fun. It's such a delightful little group of people. It is fun. And we're talking about fun things this week. We are. Uh, take a deep dive into the reality and the idea that is Mad Hatters. Yes. And how that's actually pretty terrifying. So mm-hmm. yeah, you should hop on over. Indeed. You're the best. (laughs) And we would totally go explore hidden old graveyards in the woods with you. And we would also help you drag a snapping turtle across the road. We absolutely would. Yep. (laughs) And now that I know how to do it. You really should have called me. I am great with tiny facts like that. I should have known. 
that is my wheelhouse. <laughs> like, weird shit that one might pick up in the Midwest. <laughs> um, and know. never remember. I remember only those things. <laughs> I honestly feel a little foolish because I was like, I didn't think we had turtles that big here. <laughs> I, I didn't. don't think they usually are. Are like that's an old ass turtle. Dude, that asshole was huge. I mean, usually they're like dinner plate sized, and that's sort of the big end, at least in the parts of the Midwest where I grew up and where you live. Mm hmm. And once you get further south, anything goes. But, hmm. I mean, but it's also mostly painter turtles. Yeah. At least where I grew up. Yeah, I don't know. I'm expecting if I do any research that it's probably some, like, legendary turtle that, you know. You saw a cryptid? (laughs) A cryptid snapped at you? Yeah, yeah. All right, well, we should give it a cryptid name. Ooh. Um. (laughs) I I need our listeners to tweet or comment or wherever the hell you're listening to this and name the cryptid that Natalie obviously has seen yes because it's very important is not not creative enough (laughs) (laughs) and if it pops back i'd like to you know call it by its name (laughs) yeah i mean it needs a good one like in certain parts of ohio or new jersey i'd be like oh yeah it's a variation of mothman because they always look different right i have never heard a description of mothman that was the same (laughs) and i fully feel like um this turtle could sprout wings seriously oh my gosh (sighs) uh so want to hear a story about school buses absolutely all right so Because I have been very, very busy with a lot of deadlines, Natalie kindly put together the subjects for this week. And because of that, I actually didn't know going in the history of my topic, and I still don't know the history of hers. (laughs) So it it was really fun to jump into it. So... Today, I am going to tell you why school buses are yellow. Yes. Now, I honestly thought that the history of school buses being yellow was going to have, like, a really specific and really gruesome history that would just make me never want to get in a vehicle again. (laughs) And obviously, there are plenty of stories of pre- and post-yellow bus transportation tragedies, like, we all have heard about a bus overturning on a highway. And that is terrifying and horrific. But this story isn't one of them. Or I guess at least it's not horrific in the way that you'd expect. So... In the early part of the 1900s, as the U.S. moved away from rural one-room, one-teacher schoolhouses, which, fun fact, my dad actually attended. Oh, wow. Yep. He was, he must have been one of 
the last group of kids who would have attended a rural one-room schoolhouse because my grandmother definitely went to that school as well it was called the blackman school oh and um anyway so just just to say this history isn't as far removed as you might think um so as people moved away from those rural one-room schoolhouses and as people move from farming life and into cities the student populations were consolidated into larger area schools instead of the smaller local one-room schoolhouses that might have a handful of kids at best. Mm -hmm. And so because those area schools could be miles away from the homes of the kids who are attending them, school buses to transport those kids to school and back home again became a matter of, you know, obvious practicality and necessity because before school buses, you had like kids driving wagons with draft horses. <laughs> and I, my grandmother got her driver's license at a stupefyingly young age. I think she was 11. No, oh my God. Um, <laughs> specifically, farm equipment. <laughs> spe- well, it, for farm equipment and specifically so she could drive her and her neighbors to that school wow that um and that was one of the local one rooms so um yeah i i want to say it was 11 i may be lowballing that but i i think it is that absurd and so yeah and i mean even now uh, I don't know if it's actually well known and I don't even know if it's a thing anymore, but farm kids could get their driver's licenses really young where I grew up and because they were operating tractors and farm equipments and they often needed to drive them on the road to move from field to field. And so you could legally get a driver's license at a pretty young age when I was growing up. I don't know if that's a thing now. The local public school has bring your tractor to work day or to school day, oh yeah uh, every that. year so they mm-hmm. drive their tractors and when my eldest started driver's ed the behind the wheel the teacher was like i've never had anybody that hasn't operated a vehicle of some sort before because they're all farm kids and she's like oh, yeah. yeah i grew up in the city mostly so i don't know what i'm doing but yeah it's that's really thing. funny yeah I just remember, uh, you know, I'm not actually even sure if this is apocryphal or not, but my grandma and possibly also my dad had wooden blocks strapped to the car. Um, I know that my grandma did for driving because her legs weren't long enough oh my to, God, to reach hit the pedals, the pedals. Oh but God. on the tractors. Too, oh, wow. So they could shift because they couldn't reach the clutch. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and I I remember shifting tractors really young. That just makes me fear children of the corn even more than I already do. I mean, I don't know that I could do it now, but <laughs> I was like sitting on my grandpa's lap at his farm. Yeah. And so it was l- less complicated, but I do know <laughs> the sound an engine makes when it needs to be shifted. Mm -hmm. Um, 
anyway, wow. That was several tangents that have nothing to do with this, except I guess it gives you a little context. Yeah. All right, so... Like I said, because the schools could be miles away from homes and the children attending them needed to get there and back, school buses really became a necessity, especially for rural students. Urban students at this time were already going to more consolidated public schools, but like in New York City, Public school one probably had, well, I mean, I've been to there. Uh, It's an art space now. But it definitely had more kids than any of these area schools had, even though it was similarly walkable like the one-room schoolhouses were. Mm -hmm. Um, But so now all of these farm kids or kids who have just moved into smaller town settings from more rural traditions are now needing to go to these area schools. And now that so many children were being transported together in a vehicle that would need to make frequent stops, safety quickly became a concern to both parents and schools, Mm -hmm. which obviously it would. And so here is where we enter Dr. Sear. So in 1939, Dr. Frank Sear, a professor at Teachers College at Columbia University here in New York, organized a Rockefeller Foundation funded conference where national school bus construction standards, including color, were decided upon by transition or transition, transportation officials from the then 48 states. Um, Alaska and Hawaii were not part of the union yet. And they were also joined by school bus manufacturing companies and paint companies. During the conference, much to the relief of bus and paint manufacturers, who just wanted everyone to buy the same damn thing so they could finally mass manufacture vehicles instead of doing a custom job literally every single time, um, standards including body length, ceiling height, and aisle width were set. This is also the conference that settled upon the now ubiquitous, at least in the United States, also in Canada and in many other places. School bus yellow. According to Dr. Sear, at the conference, color stripes that ranged from red to yellow were put on a wall and the attendees narrowed the choices down to three very similar shades of yellow. And they narrowed it down to three specifically to account for the imprecise nature of mixing colors for paint at the time. Because it wasn't like you walk into a hardware store and you scan your paint chip digitally. Right. You had to mix it by hand. And as someone who has operated a paint machine in a hardware store and done both, it's... It's an interesting experience. And so it made sense to have those three colors so you could have that variation and still be in line with the standards. 
In the following few years, 35 states adopted these standards, with Minnesota bringing up the rear in 1974 when they became the last state to change to the standard color. Uh, they were just yeah, real stubborn. Right. They were like, nope, we're not going to do it. <laughs> they had, and I'm going to try to say this without an accent, and it's not going to work. <clears throat> they had Minnesota cold and orange. <clears throat> Minnesota golden orange. No, that still had the accent. Anyway, moving on, <laughs> which honestly seems pretty close to me. That is more or less, golden orange is how I would describe school bus yellow. Yeah. And Dr. Sear himself always thought the color was more orange than yellow, which is kind of funny. It is. So the very recognizable yellow that we see on every bus that is currently on the road, like every school bus, is officially known as National School Bus Glossy Yellow. And that is true both in the U.S. and in Canada, which I think is kind of interesting. It is. But at the outset, it was called National School Bus Chrome. Mm. And it was adopted by the National Bureau of Standards as federal standard number 595A, color 13432. And the color, quite reasonably, was selected specifically because the black lettering was most visible in the semi-darkness of dawn and twilight when many students, especially in the winter, would be riding these buses. And especially in the earliest days of busing when it was a much slower process. Yeah. And because it really, really stood out visually, it would also be a way to signal to people around that the vehicle that they were seeing that was this truly obnoxious shade of <laughs> yellow was a school bus and that caution should be taken. And so it was really interestingly to me both a practicality reason mm -hmm. and a safety reason yeah but it worked equally well in both respects which i feel like doesn't happen very right. often That's, yeah alas school bus yellow or national school bus chrome as it was then referred to had a dark side. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. Though very effective, it had some serious safety downsides for the people manufacturing the buses. National School Bus Chrome was not only a chromate, which is already a known carcinogen, as the name would imply, um, School Bus Chrome, it was a lead chromate Ooh. with a lot of lead, like second only to gray in the amount of lead that a worker might absorb. Oof. Yeah. And now that there were 
actual standards in place for color and manufacture, buses new and old would need to be painted with this super fun chromium yellow lead paint. And yeah, like I said, it's one of the more dangerous of the lead paints. And it's, I'm not sure how many people understand or have heard why lead paints were so widely used anyway, like in the before times of them being banned because they were so dangerous. But if you happen to be wondering, it's because lead paints have significantly greater opacity and so they require fewer coats and mm -hmm. so they're cheaper like lead paints were marketed as being able to cover up anything and they were right <laughs> At they a cost. just yeah it was just a bad idea i can understand the popularity though then so the workers who had to work within the manufacturing and the painting aspects of that manufacturing were exposed to seriously high amounts of lead and had the side effects that were related to seriously high amounts of lead. And I'm not entirely sure whether this concern also extended to the children, oh, but I'll yeah. get to that in a second. So when all lead-based paints were finally banned in the U.S. in 1978, National School Bus Chrome was no more, and National School Bus Glossy Yellow took its place. And the new color was, of course, significantly less toxic but it also required more coats to achieve the same opacity as fewer coats of that lead paint. And so it was also then significantly more expensive yeah. for districts to use it, but there wasn't another option. Um, I also bet Minnesota was pissed that they didn't hold out for a couple more years. <laughs> right. And like I said earlier, it isn't really clear to me from a practical standpoint, how much danger children themselves were truly in from the outside coloring of those school buses. But we do know that the danger of the lead-based paint did and still does pose a danger to people who live, work, and visit older buildings. Like, developmental delays, seizures, headaches, memory issues, and more. And those problems happen now. Yeah. Like, I live in a very, very old building in New York City. I don't even want to know what is a couple layers deep on my walls. Yeah. Because it's lead paint. Let's... Right. I mean... It, it has to be, given how old this building is. And so, I mean, I'm not licking the walls. I was going to paint, don't lick the walls. 
I'm also not procreating. So mm-hmm. it is less of a concern to me, but still, that's not good. And it's a problem that persists. Mm-hmm. And even after the ban was enacted, that was just a ban on new manufacturing. Ah. Existing painted school buses and any other wet painted surface remained in use or on the road until they were retired. And I mean, right now you can walk into any attic or antique store and still find plenty of lead paint because it's everywhere. Yeah. And it's sort of terrifying to think of how many things are contaminated with this particular neurotoxin. But yeah, best not think too hard on that. Yeah, uh, so it's say, not oh, no. to have panic attacks. <laughs> but I would also like to say that the irony of lead, which is extremely dangerous to kids, being used to keep kids safe is not lost on me. Right? Yeah. And so I just have a couple of fun facts to wrap up this section with about Dr. Sear because he was an interesting dude and I sort of took a deep dive after reading his obituary. Oh, okay. And I found out that he, he might have felt right at home during the past year of remote schooling because in the 1950s, he experimented with teaching by telephone. And in 1965, he helped establish a television system for rural schools in the Catskills, which is part of New York State. Right. And like 1965, and I believe that currently there are there's still a channel in the Catskills that broadcasts AP classes that's awesome because they're not necessarily readily available in every school and I grew up in a school small enough that we didn't have them yeah so I, I just think that's really interesting. That is. So he was already doing that in the 50s and 60s, which really cool. I think is fantastic. And Dr. Sear is himself sort of known as the father of school bus yellow. <laughs> that is his reputation. And apparently, as a child... His son, William Sear, asked the professor, his father, if you're the father of the yellow school bus, what does that make me? (laughs) And um, apparently, whenever William, the kid, saw a school bus out in the wild, he would say, there goes one of my brothers. (laughs) (laughs) And I I just thought that was very charming. That is very charming. Yep. And this is, I feel like, one of the few instances where someone truly meant well. Yeah. Like the the lead paint was a problem, but it wasn't necessarily a known problem to 
I don't think that it was known to be healthy, but I don't think the extent of the danger was known at the time. But Dr. Sear really seems to have devoted his entire life to working specifically to further the education opportunities in rural schools. He wrote a bunch of books on the subject. And when he died at 95, I want to say it was in 2017, but I did not write it down. Um, He was working on a book about rural schools in the 21st century. Wow. Which I think is just so cool. It is to be that devoted to accessibility yet, you know. Yeah. And that really was his entire focus all of his books are about that the things that he specifically studied were related to that and we're talking about a professor at columbia in new york city yeah and i i just think that's really interesting and that's pretty cool he sounds fascinating and i didn't find anything particularly problematic about him and I hope there isn't anything, because I kind of like this guy. Yeah. Huh. So the, that's School Bus Yellow. That's awesome. I didn't know yeah. any of that. <laughs> I mean, I, I knew that. I knew, either. I knew there was a, I knew there was a problematic toxicity. <laughs> yes. Which makes it, I mean, like, that part I knew, but I didn't know, like, how amazing. And this whole standardization, and why, it, in my head, you would think, hi, designer, it's that obnoxious yellow, so the black, so the lettering pops. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, but I never really put a lot of thought in it. Yeah, there are multiple national standards keepers, recorders, setters. I don't know <laughs> um, that have these particular colors as requirements. So I think, and I'm going to totally screw these names up, uh, the National Transportation Bureau now has a much longer name. (laughs) And the highway, the Bureau of Highways and Mm -hmm. whatever the hell, um, that also is part of the standards. And it has like a hex code and like it's a very, very specific kind of 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 standard that's in use way more widely than I had known or would have expected. I didn't know that it was required. It's fascinating to me that something that is so widely used mm-hmm. was actually agreed upon and implemented so long ago. Yeah, well, at a literal hotel in New York City where transportation representatives, school representatives, and the people actually manufacturing the shit who stood to make a lot of money all got together and were like, all right, let's 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 solve this problem. Let's do this. Like, that is kind of fucking magical. It is. I mean, it's like, also... Like, that's how shit should work. Yeah, I'm sure that there are, like, 
there are problems when the public and the private sphere connect in a in an area where money is involved right right, but that also that is a venn diagram whose ship has sailed i don't think that we're i don't think there's a possibility of separating them at this point but that is a really good example of it being used like that power that ability to set standards was used for a totally reasonable solution and i'm not sure if this standard applies to private schools like i know that our church bus was definitely (laughs) not school bus yellow and i don't think uh i think they're called yeshiva schools the um the The hasidic jewish schools that are really prevalent in williamsburg in brooklyn i'm not i can't remember if they are that color I think many of them are, but I'm not sure if all of them are. See, Elvis but, goes to a private school. They don't even have a bus. They have other vehicles, <laughs> but they yeah. don't. Um, but yeah, that's so all for the all for safety and accessibility of education. Like, oh yeah, that's, it's and like school buses through the ages are fascinating to look at because the first ones. Well, have you ever been on the Jungle Ride in Disney World? I have not. Or the Jungle Cruise, maybe it's not called that anymore, I don't know. But it's basically a boat with many seats with a tarp over it. Nice. And that's pretty much exactly what the first school bus looked like. Or the I first re- <laughs> purposeful school bus. I remember the girls were devastated that uh, we lived too close for them to take the bus. Oh, I was mad about it, too. And really wanted to be on the bus. And I remember Alice's kindergarten, first kindergarten field trip, Mm. where she got to go on a bus. And she was super excited she was going to get to go on this bus. And then I got a phone call because because she was was refusing to to allow the bus to go because there's no seatbelts. She was very concerned about the safety and well-being and the legality of the fact that she was in an, a vehicle and there was no seatbelts. <laughs> I looked into that particular tangent as well when I was researching this, and maybe I will cover this at a different point in depth. But buses that are below a different size, so like the shorter school buses or mm-hmm. the special needs school buses, like very specifically smaller and outfitted for specific use school buses do have seatbelts and some states require them by law. And, but it's actually, it hasn't been found that school or that seatbelts actually make school buses safer. It has been found that maybe they make it less safe. Oof. So I don't know. I I would have to take a much deeper dive into right, that. Right. But 
it doesn't seem that there's any real solid evidence that seatbelts would be a, a good thing on seat they're on school buses. I would think that they would be just because we all think that they would right. be. Right. Logic. It just seems logical. But I yeah. think that it's maybe has to do with escape and His speed. little fingers trying to open seatbelts that makes sense yeah i i'm not sure but it seems like that comes into play like what happens in an accident mm-hmm. if you do have seatbelts or if you don't and the outcomes seem at least according to what i was looking at to be better if you don't okay that makes sense so, I can see that. um but i could be completely wrong so if you know better Tell me. No. <laughs> yeah, I will gladly run a correction on that. But yeah, so yellow school bus. Yay! Yay! That is pretty fun. So, uh, we have covered badass ladies that helped win wars when mm-hmm. we talked about the Night Witches. We've covered women whose bodies changed colors while falling apart. Just to provide a better living for their families with the radio. We're not talking about the love wins. No. <laughs> no, we're talking about the radium girls. Mm-hmm. So today I'm gonna talk about badass women who helped win wars and turn colors doing so. What? I am so excited <laughs> about this because I don't know anything about it. At least I don't think I do. And that seems super weird, given the I, subject and the time right? period. Exactly. But, oh, I'm so excited to same. hear you. Mm-hmm. I was the same. Like, I'd heard of them, but I did not know. So today, I'm going to talk about the World War One munitionettes of the UK, otherwise known as the Canary Girls. Munitionettes? Munitionettes. Oh, I bet I know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, right. oh, yes. So, when the war started in 19... 19- I just mean, given the color. Yeah. Yep, <laughs> and yep. munitions. Yep. So, when the war started in 1914, approximately 24% of working age women were already employed. Uh, but they worked mainly in domestic jobs with only a small amount doing, like, very simple work in smaller factory industries. Right. As the war began to rage on, though, women would find both the need to work and the variety of jobs available to significantly increase. Uh, There was a major shift from the traditional roles they had before to more male-dominated areas because all of the men had gone off to fight. Well, not all of them, but... You know, their husbands were off. They had to wait. A good portion of the able-bodied men. (laughs) I want to say millions. Uh, in World War One, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to say, for some reason, the 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 number ten million sticks in my head, but I could be completely wrong on that. Um, so the biggest shift occurred though, uh, following a shortage of shells in 1915, mm-hmm. and it was then that the Ministry of Munitions was founded to control Britain's output of war material. So it all like oversaw all of the aspects of the production and the supply of all munitions and was under the, let's say, enthusiastic minister for munitions, David Lloyd George. Now, 8.7 million. Oh, okay. There we go. Thank you. (laughs) 
So who uh, served at some point between 1914 and 1918 from the UK. There we go. That makes sense. Um, Sorry. You know I got a Google fact. Nope. I appreciate it. (laughs) Uh, So under George, Mm -hmm. a a number of new initiatives were introduced to like amp up the production levels. Basically, they were going to lose. And yeah, they needed to to, to fix that quickly. So one of those... (laughs) Uh-huh. was to appeal to women to register for war service work. So yep. women had now gone from working as housemaids, cooks, nannies, to being employed in munition factories um, where they became known as munitionettes. I they, kind of love that, even though it's kind of demeaning. Right. Like, right, it right. seems like a punk group from the 80s like i could totally picture a like a roller derby team yeah that it would or definitely. like a a riot girl band yes 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 uh so they performed both heavy duty and uh delicate tasks that required uh more skill than the brute force that guys are used to doing um they also handled detonators explosives um machining shell cases i mean smaller hands right that's why a lot of kids yeah used to hopefully in the past be employed in those areas yeah by the end of the war there were almost three million women working in factories with about a third of those employed in the manufacturing of munitions hot damn now, a typical work week for the woman who worked in these factories was about 12 hours a day, six days a week, Whew. with most working on a bonus system that encouraged productivity and faster work, which the radium girls also faced the same. The more you kick oh, out, the more you the get radium paid. girls. Poor peanuts. Uh, so yeah. to get an idea of how needed their working bodies were, Many factories actually built temporary housing and set up nurseries so mothers could join the workforce. No way. Yep. Uh, there were some men that continued to work there and they appreciated the help. But we could do an entire episode on the harassment that these women faced. Inc- oh my gosh. Including deliberate sabotage. By those that weren't stories from my grandmother working at a light factory. Oh God, I can imagine. Uh, She built lights for President Ford's inauguration. That's amazing. And was the only person allowed to touch them. Oh, that's very cool. Security reasons. That's so cool. And the men were pissed. Oh yeah. Yep. Anyway, sorry. So no, don't be sorry. We didn't need. So (laughs) hey, to further add insult. The, mu- the munition nets were paid less than half of their male counterparts. Oh, of and, course. And striking was made illegal. So there was little they could do about it. I mean, the- I understand the needs of a war effort. Mm. But, like, uh-uh. Are you ready to get real pissed? Mm-hmm. The War Cabinet Committee on Women in Industry oh, no. agreed that equal, you know, with equal pay in principle, they said, but believed Uh, that due to their, and I air quote with both middle fingers, lesser strength and special health problems. What the fuck are those? The the output of women would not possibly be as great as that of the male workers. 
Fucking patriarchy. Um, aren't there like literal actual numbers? Yeah. That they. Mm-hmm. I. I <sighs> yeah. Again, whole nother episode. Jesus. A whole lot more cussing. So much more cussing. That needs to be a Patreon topic because oh, we're going to get taken down from yes. anywhere else. Yes. Uh, in further reading section on the show notes, you're going to find uh, an amazing set of oral histories. The Imperial oh, War cool. Museum curated uh, from nine women what it was like to work in the munition factories and, to de- and they detailed what the factory life is really like. Um, there's also a link to a podcast by the Imperial War Museum as well um, that is, I think it's under 20 minutes long, um, that includes real life women too as well. Um, so I highly, cool. highly recommend that. Uh, so in addition to these delicate tasks, women got the super special added bonus of oh. also working with hazardous chemicals on a daily well, basis, such as trinitrile toluene which is tnt yeah uh despite the safer working conditions that allegedly came with our buddy george they didn't and his (laughs) fancy position these women worked without adequate protection again at less than half the pay i about flipped my freaking lid so i found a range of speculated wages for women in munition factories with the average being about three pounds a week. Now, taking three pounds a week in 1916, obviously, you know, we're talking about conversion to U.S. dollars in quite a bit, but I ran it through three different calculators, like three different programs, and it's about $267.48 a week now. For 72 fucking hours, they made like $3.22 an hour, I think. Yeah. Uh. Uh-huh. Uh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My eye, um, just everything twitching. So. Yes. Cursing patriarchy aside, what is TNT? But I have a question. Yeah. Why weren't the men off fighting pissed that the women weren't making more money? Because presumably those women were maintaining the families and the homes that those men would be returning to. Right. So you would think that fighting men would be pissed. You would think, but I don't know that they knew how much. I mean, think about the the length of time it would have taken communication to get from their wife to them being like, hey, BT dubs. Um, yeah. I don't know exactly how long that took. I think it yeah. was faster than we think it is. But um, yeah. So they were probably like just trying to stay alive. I mean, if they're on a battlefield, what are they going to be able to do about it? Um, throw a bayonet. In the right. Air. I don't know. <laughs> It, it's it's bullshit. I mean, and when you look at it that way, too, I mean, it shafts our vet- the veterans as well. I mean, all around, yeah. it was just crap. So, science time! Uh, TNT is a pale yellow solid organic nitrogen compound that's used chiefly as an mm-hmm. explosive, um, and it's prepared by, like, stepwise nitration of tooling. Uh, so, mm-hmm. um, 
in the I said that wrong. It's not tuline. It's toluene. Toluene. It doesn't look like it, but I listen to all of the messages. Yes. So first step, it is nitrated with a mixture of oh sulfuric and nitric acid to produce mononitrotoluene, which is MNT. Then the MNT is separated and then reintrated to dinitrotoluene, which is DNT. In the final step, the DNT is nitrated into trinitrotoluene, which is the TNT, using a mixture of nitric acid and oleum. Nitric acid is then consumed by the manufacturing process. But the dilutic sulfuric acid can be reconcentrated and reused. After the nitration, TNT is stabilized by a process called sulfitation, which is the crude TNT is treated with aqueous sodium sulfite solution Mm -hmm. to remove less stable isomers of TNT and other undesired reaction products. The rinse water from sulfitation is known as red water and a Mm -hmm. significant pollutant and waste product of the TNT manufacturing. So like, yeah, I bet Super it smells fun, awful too. Right? Super fun stuff. Uh, yeah. Stuff that you should totally be handling under shitty conditions for 72 hours a week, right? I mean, like, I am going to go ahead and assume there were no gloves. What? Yeah. Well, because they couldn't have anything. Oh my God. They were padded down. We'll get to that. Uh, okay. But, like, what could possibly go wrong? And why? Why are they called the Canary Girls, you might ask? Uh, and does it have to do with the coal mine? <laughs> nope, no coal mine. Okay. But, uh, so munition cells were filled with a mixture of TNT, which is the explosive, and as an extra bonus, a propellant called cordite. Huh. Even though the dangers of both and hazardous to the hazards to the health of those working with them were quite known they were mixed by hand like direct contact with skin oh the chemicals in the tnt then reacted with the melanin in the skin causing a yellow pigmentation that that stained their skin the color of canary oh my god it gets better I don't think I realized that melanin was what it was reacting with. Yeah. And now I thought it was just the sulfur related everything. Right. Right. Oh, he. So (laughs) (laughs) now that's unpleasant, right? But it's actually not the most dangerous part. And it's not the only place the yellow comes in. Oh, good. Typically, the discoloration of the skin faded over time from that aspect. Typically? Yeah. It was so commonplace. There is even facial creams that were marketed directly to the Canary Girls that allegedly helped removing the stains. Allegedly. I Um, feel like you should just rub oil on your face and create a barrier. That's pretty much what it was. It was just a really thick, oily cream. Um, Oh, God. The serious consequences of working with the TNT powder was, oh, liver toxicity, which led to anemia and jaundice. 
That's this fun. condition known as toxic jaundice gave the skin a different type of yellow hue. Yeah, gross yellow green. Yep. So the orange thrown in. It typically began with sneezing fits, a horrible cough, severe sore throat. Totally makes sense because they're dealing with massive amounts of fine powder flying around every day. Oh, breathing. Just, oh. Breathing that is going to start with respiratory issues. Digestive fun followed next. Many said the worst part was the constant metallic taste. Other fun Uh, symptoms that you could find as a bonus sometimes. Are they vampires? (laughs) Uh, Included hair turning green or just completely falling out. Uh, Chest pain, breast deformation, Weakening of the immune system, vomiting, <laughs> anemia, migraines, and, oh, fertility problems. Hmm. In fact, there were hundreds of cases of munitionettes giving birth to yellow children. Nicknamed. What in the actual fuck? Seriously, nicknamed baby canaries. And nothing could be done for the babies at the time. And eventually, the discoloration just slowly faded. There is, uh... So the babies were okay? Yeah. All right. Crazy pants. In Katie Addy's 2013 book, Fighting on the Home Front, a munitionette was quoted as saying, You expected to feel poorly. Our skin was perfectly yellow, right down through the body, legs, and toenails, even. Ah! While some just couldn't tolerate it and quit, most only left when their health completely failed. By uh, 1960... 1960- well, of course they did. Right? They needed to work. They had no other choice. Uh, Ooh, so by 1916, which was only like a freaking year later, it was such a concern that the government launched a medical investigation to closely study the effects of TNT on the munition workers. I feel like, duh. Right? Like, it just... But, yeah. Data was gathered by investigators acting as female medical officers posted inside the factories. They found that the... Oh, good. (laughs) The effects of... Your law espionage, it's fine. Uh, They found that the effects of the TNT could be roughly split into two areas. There was irritative symptoms, and those mainly affected the skin, the respiratory tract, and the digestive system. And then the toxic symptoms, which included the nausea, jaundice, constipation, dizziness, fertility issues, all of that. Oh, it was years later. Those are should be separated, right? Oh. It was years later that they actually established the possibility that the irritative symptoms were also partially caused by the cordite in the shell mixture. Like at that point, they didn't even look at the cordite; they were, which they should have. Um, but they were just focused on the TNT. Now, yes. you would think long hours, shitty pay, harassment, and the plethora of health issues would be more than enough. But none of that was the worst part of the job. Oh, no. Most feared the explosions the most. Yeah. Well. Explosions. That is reasonable. You see... Blasts occurred pretty frequently and were an ever-present hazard. The explosives well, you're working with yeah volatile explosive material. 
they ignited on several occasions, injuring or killing workers. When the women came in, they were inspected every day when they showed up for work and couldn't have any metal on them whatsoever. Like, not a bobby pin. Nothing. Now, And that's not a bad idea. No, it's not. I mean, kudos for one small... But, you know, it's only because then they would blow up the goods. Uh, so, the deadliest blast occurred in 1918 when an explosion at the National Shell filing, Filling Factory in Chilwell killed over 130 workers which uh-huh. is the biggest loss of life during a single explosion during the First World War, which says a lot, and Britain's wow. worst ever disaster involve- involving an explosion to date. Amazingly, much like the fact that an average two munitionites died a week, it was a tragedy that was kept secret at the time. Like, it's still hard to find information on it, because the government went to, like, great How? lengths to hide this shit. There were a million and 37 women watching. Yeah. Their and, friends blow up. Yeah. And, oh. yeah, it's, hmm. Uh, many factories actually required workers to wear dog tags, which I would be used. they were supposed to have metal. They weren't metal. Uh, that would be used to identify casualties in the event of an explosion. So, but Which that is practical. It's practical, but that fact leads me to believe that it wasn't really a fucking secret if you're, you know... Mm. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think it also, like, should be said that there, that these jobs had to be done. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. like, someone had to do them. It's not like they would have just gone away. Right. But, Jesus. Yeah. They didn't have to be this dangerous. Yeah. There, I mean, even, even then, there was precautions that could have been taken. Yeah. Uh, so, by the end of the war, it's estimated that around 80% of the weapons being used at the front line were made by munitionettes. Uh, based on all the secrecy and lack of knowledge, it's extremely hard to find accurate statistics on exactly how many Canary Girls died, whether on the job or due to the effects of the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the war was over and the men returned, vast majority of women were forced out of the factories, particularly the married women, uh, who many thought shouldn't be in any type of work to begin with. Uh, and then there was a great emphasis of jobs being available for the men returning from the front to the extent where even some jobs that were traditionally female held positions were now turned over to the men that returned with the injuries. Huh. Some say the government tried to give a somewhat like a token, a gesture of things with the representation of the people act of 1918 Mm-hmm. Which granted some, but by all means, not all women the right to vote. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Mm-hmm. That that's compensation yeah. for that's yeah. Well, and it, that's, mm, yeah. Okay, that's a whole whole other episode too. The political aspects of this entire population of women and the effects of how dangerous this was, but how needed they were. And just, there's a whole political side of this that Mm -hmm. easily is an episode in and of itself. 
Um, but I tried to focus just on the the sciency medical. <laughs> Sorry, my cat. <laughs> That's fine. Um, Mr. Big Stuff, stop it. That that, my dears, is the very very condensed story of the Canary Girls. There is an article in a British publication that had a photo of one of the few remaining uh, canary babies. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she's in her 90s. Uh, And she's like, eventually I wasn't yellow anymore. Charming little thing. I mean, uh, at yeah. least she wasn't yellow. And I, I don't they're still not exactly sure how it happened, why it happened. Like, it it wasn't a matter of them just being born jaundice. Yeah. It's just kind of a, a mystery. And I'm like, that's... I don't feel like it's much of a mystery. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Fun fact related to this particular time period. Mm-hmm. One of my Singer Featherweight sewing machines was made, well, half of it was made before the factory was switched to a munitions factory. And the other half of it was made after, and this is World War II, not one. Mm-hmm. Um, in the UK. Um, and the other half was made after. So looking That's up fun. all the serial numbers is bonkers. <laughs> because the years are so disparate. But all of them. Er, but everything is original on the machine. So it it's like it time traveled. That's crazy pants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's... Uh... There's a lot of photos of these, you know, these delicate little looking women standing next to these giant freaking rockets they're packing full of just yeah. missiles, rather. Rockets, Those girls missiles. had dicks big enough to see from space. Yeah, they they really did. Uh, and The biggest of big dick energy. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Hot damn. Ooh, I just found a propaganda painting. Oh, yeah. Like yep. the, the join up or knit your bit, you know, that kind. <laughs> yes. um, for munitions makers. They're wearing leather gloves and that shit. Nope. Nope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And yet. Yeah. And yet. And yet. <laughs> wow. I'm both fascinated and really pissed off <laughs> right <laughs> it's more like yay then but oh my god yeah <sighs> uh-uh no i i say no so i think that brings us to <laughs> the weekly worst way to die da, da, da. <laughs> well what is your weekly worst way to die Mine is getting my yellow self accidentally blown up while making $3.72 an hour. $3.72, that's what it was, not $22. That's fair. Um, that would suck. Yeah, mine is the giant fucking spider in my bathroom. <laughs> that is fair. That is completely fair. 
two very different awful ways to die. Yes, indeed. We will post our regular weekly worst way to die poll, generally speaking, on Wednesdays. And you can tell us which way you would particularly not like to die. Tell us your own, too. We're always open. Indeed. Do you want to be spooky internet friends? Probably. Probably. I mean, come on. Who wouldn't? Uh, You can find us at Bones and Bobbins on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest. Pin us a little pin on your worst way to die. That's cool. Tell us about your cats. (laughs) We like cats. Cats are fun. And you can find us. Mine are yowling right now. (laughs) Mine literally coughed up a furball earlier. I'm really hoping I. (laughs) Oh, I didn't hear it. It didn't catch. The audio didn't catch. I'm like, that's. That's great, thanks. Um, but you can also just find us at bonesandbobbins.com. It, it's true. And don't forget to review this podcast and yell about how pissed off you are on behalf of the Canary Girls because, yes. Jesus Christ. Um, but also because it pleases the internet gremlins and that's how we show up in recommendations so that other morbid souls can find us and so that we can continue making shows and talking to you bring forth the morbid souls and every good rating brings down the patriarchy (laughs) i don't know why that is my fanfare for today but it is it is it works (laughs) and that on that note Let us leave you with some advice that you should never, ever forget. No. Lock your doors. And don't run with scissors. And dear Or Lord. bombs. <laughs> dear Lord, wear gloves when working with chemicals. Yes, please. And masks. Respirators. Yes, yes respirators. Just okay. protect all the things. Yeah. <laughs> Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast is written and researched by Haley Pearson-Cox, and Natalie Hoyce. Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so you won't miss a minute of our strange and creepy content.